From the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. JV had one job to do and Justin Verlander went out there and did his job and the Astros scored just enough runs as they win game five hard fought tense filled ball game in Philly to take a three to two lead in the World Series and the Strohs are now one win away from their second World Series championship. How good's Jeremy Pena? <laughs> that cat's a rookie. That cat is a rookie playing that way, by the way. Carlos Correa, who? Good morning. Welcome to RP3 and Company. Oh, man, it's going to be a good show. We got a great show planned for you for the weekend. We're going to be talking World Series today. We're going to be talking LSU Alabama. We're going to be talking Louisiana Raging Cajuns versus Troy. McNeese versus Eastern Illinois. NASCAR Championship Weekend. High school football. New Orleans Saints. It's all on tap this morning. All on tap this morning. What's our lineup look like? What? Let me tell you. You ready for it? Here it comes. An hour from now, World Series Talk Astros Talk with our guy from the Lima Time Time podcast, James Yasko. Straight up 7 o'clock. Then at 7.30, Ryan Fowler from 109 in Tuscaloosa from the longest running sports talk show in T-Town will join us to give us insight on Alabama for the LSU-Alabama matchup. Then at 7.50, Scott Holtzman from the Barb Buccaneers broadcast team. They have turned things around this season. The Bucs have, have won three straight, are now 5-4. and four. They have a tilt with Acadiana High tonight over in Lake Charles. A win will likely get them into the playoffs. A loss will keep them out. We'll talk about that with Scott. At the end of hour number two. And then hour number three. Toby Christie from tobychristie.com. NASCAR's season has come to an end. Championship weekend is this weekend. Who is going to take the series cup? We'll get that for you at 8 o'clock. Then fantasy football advice from Zach Miller, our expert. And then Scott Shanley. Super Bowl champion, starting linebacker for the New Orleans Saints, will join us to talk about everything going on with the Houdats in their big matchup against Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens. What? What? I told you it was jam-packed. 
I told you it was going to be on another level. Hannah Five Names is here. She survived the Facebook Live, Twitch Live extravaganza of Kevin Foote pacing. I do believe we need a new rug here in the studio because there is a foot path that has been burned into the carpet. <laughs> I was broadcasting the St. Landry Parish game of the week last night with my buddy Chad Jones, but I was able to to watch a little bit of foot and our guy Blaine Viator helping him out and Foot's family there on standby as well. He was in Chef's Kiss. He was just the perfect version of crazy, overpassionate fan. Because that's what Foot is. That's what Kevin is. He is the craziest, most passionate fan you've ever met. The His life, his personality, his day is directly impacted by the whims of a team that he doesn't even play for. Can you imagine that? Foot puts the fan in fanatic. He does. My man is the biggest fan I've ever met in my life. Like, I love my teams. Don't get me wrong. Not like that. No, 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 no. <laughs> Not like that. And five names, you got to experience it firsthand. You got to survive your first adventure of having Kevin watch one of his teams. And you survived. Yeah. I actually had a lot of fun. I think it was more because it was just funny watching him. And he was so animated about every ball, strike, catch. It's exhausting. Hit. It was. It's exhausting. I mean, I, yeah, I was tired when I got home, but it also was late, so I was that tired. Um, but it was hilarious. His The way his kids interact with him, too, while he's, the game is playing and he's, like, already yelling, it's hilarious. They still laugh. They still laugh whenever he gets so red in the face that we think it's going to explode. And the comments that were on Facebook Live the whole time were even hilarious. They're like, that's the strongest blood vessel I've ever seen. And he's too, we then somehow he got into his own, he, he brought up his own weight. And someone's like, he's two almond joys away from 300. And someone's like, he's like, no, actually, two almond joys away from 240. He made sure he corrected people. <laughs> if Foot's family was here. To be part of it, that's yes, his support system. Thank, thank, thank God for them. Oh yeah. Thank God for them. Uh, did the experience make you value and respect Michelle even more? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah it makes it me does. pray for her two times a day instead of one. <laughs> yes, as it should. As it should. Girl, I left, and we had it was things like the top of the seventh. I think when I left, and. Michelle was sleeping on the couch. Russ was still hiding in there with the charger on his phone <laughs> with headphones in. But then Cassie and Taylor and Riley were all just sitting there just having a ball. It was it was hilarious. Good for them. Good for them. And what an experience. Whew, that's a lot. He's a lot. 
<laughs> he just is. He just is. And thankfully, thankfully, the Houston Astros were able to get the win. It was dramatic. So many key moments in this game. And it starts off with Verlander giving up a home run. And you're like, really? <laughs> you're like, you're like, really? Are you kidding me? What are you doing? But credit JV, he settled down. It's as it's as if giving up the home run kind of just relaxed Verlander, if that makes any sense. But go through this game. Jeremy Pena, oh, man. If they win this series, feels like he's going to be World Series MVP to me. He's just – and he's a rookie. And he's a rookie. And he's a rookie. <laughs> just – he came up clutch. Verlander settled down. The bullpen, for the most part, did its job. Chance McCormick, what a catch at the wall. Every time they needed a play, they got it. And I was talking to our guy, Nick Fondo, texting him back and forth, and he said, you know, the Astros took all the momentum away the night before, and he's right. They had the confidence. And you could tell throughout this game, Philly was getting frustrated. They just were. It was unbelievable. A great, dramatic game. And the Strohs win it. Three to two. That catch by McCormick. Oh, man. If he doesn't make that catch... Phillies more than likely win the game. That's how important that catch was. But it started with Verlander. He gives up the home run. He bounces back from it, pushes through. He gets his first World Series win in his career. But he did what he was supposed to do. I said go five or six innings, and that's what he did. Rookie Jeremy Pena, sensational at the dish. And the two defensive plays. Trey Mancini has been absolutely dreadful at the plate. He's been a liability. Guess what? That glove work at first first base last night. Coming in for Yuli Gurriel, who got injured, hurt himself during a rundown. That, I thought, was going to kill Kevin. Because my game had wrapped up by the time that rundown happened. And I'm sitting there watching it in the parking lot before driving. And I'm like, oh, no. I'm listening to the game on our station. And I have my phone to Facebook. Facebook on my phone watching it. And I'm like, oh, no. There's the rundown. And I just see Kevin's reaction. What are you? And he's like, is he hurt? Is he hurt? Just don't get hurt. (laughs) Just don't get hurt. And I'm like. I'm like, oh, oh, he's hurt. He's hurt. Mancini makes that great play at first. Then McCormick gets the diving catch at the wall in the ninth inning for the 3-2 victory. Now they'll have two chances, game six Saturday, game seven Sunday if needed. Both will be at home. You're going to throw Framer Valdez on Saturday. 
You still have plenty of arms, fresh arms in your bullpen to go. If you need Jose Arquiti, guess what? You'll have him for game seven as well. And for the Strohs, after losing two World Series to underdog teams, to the Nationals in 19 and to the Braves in 2021, they sure do seem primed not to have it happen a third time to them. Remember, they were the underdogs in 2017 when they beat the Dodgers. And this whole series shifted with Christian Javier and the three relievers combining for the no-no in game four. That kind of got the Strohs swag back, if you will. He gives off that leadoff home run. Verlander does to Kyle Schwarber. Fought through. Did not have command of his fastball last night, by the way. Did not have it. Yet, the old veteran found a way. Used his slider. Only gave up the one run through five innings. He did his job. Had a 2-1 lead when he left the game. Pena had that first inning single and then a fourth inning home run. Boy, the stage isn't too big for that young man. It's phenomenal what the Astros do with their young talent. It just is. Just whether it's the pitchers or the young position players, they just find a way. They prepare those guys. They find them, first of all, and then they prepare them and develop them to understand what's at stake. Astros had that lead until the eighth when John Secura got the RBI single, breaking the Phillies' 20 at-bats hitless streak with runners in scoring position in the World Series. And there were runners on the corners with only one out. And Philadelphia's lineup was about to turn over. And then Dusty said, "Uh uh-uh. It's time to bring in the man. It's time to bring in Ryan Presley. Go ahead and shut this down. Take care of it, big fella. And Presley had not recorded a save of more than four outs since July 14th. It was November 3rd last night, by the way. More than four outs. He eats a pressure situation, gives it to Presley. He strikes out Marsh. Schwarber comes up. And that's when Mancini makes his great play. 0 for 18 to start the postseason at the dish. Been a huge liability. But when Yuli gets hurt, he gets inserted into the lineup. It's his natural position playing first base. He he hugged the right field line four pitches later. Schwarber turned on a slider by Presley, sent a one-hopper down the line, and Mancini got on his knees, fielded it, stepped on first place to end the inning. Then came the next inning. Phillies were down to their final two outs. Real Moto was up. Hits it opposite field. And you're like, oh, no. Oh, no. Extra base hit coming. Phillies are going to try to rally. Phillies are going to try to win this game. 
It could have easily been a triple. Easily. And then Bryce Harper was up next. But McCormick, once again, another sensational defensive play, sprinted nearly 100 feet, collected himself, and timed his jump on the wall to catch the ball. Boom. Verlander, Pena, Mancini, McCormick, Presley. These are the types of games that break the will and break the back of the opponent. Because Philly had numerous opportunities in this ballgame to win it, and they didn't because the Astros were simply the better team. Three, two, win. Game five. Strohs now lead this series three games to two. Game six will be Saturday. And they can win their second World Series championship in franchise history. Framer Valdez will be taking the bump. We got to take a timeout. More RP3 and company, though, coming up right here on the game. We'll take your phone calls. Want to talk World Series? Want to talk LSU Alabama? Want to talk college football? Love to hear from you. Hotline's always open 337 706 0111. That's 337 706-0111. You're listening to Southwest Louisiana Sports Station and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Want to join in the discussion with RP3? Then just give us a call on the hotline. You know the number. 2-4-9-5-6-7-8. I can't hear you. You're trailing off. And did I catch a niner in there? Were you calling from a walkie-talkie? No need to be embarrassed. Just call us at 337-706-0111. Back to more RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. In Louisiana, there are thousands of miles of utility lines and gas pipelines buried just beneath the surface. Sometimes multiple lines are in one area. So if you or a contractor that you've hired is digging a hole to put in a new fence, a pool, or for any other reason, you run the risk of hitting an underground line by digging only a few inches. What happens then? Maybe you only knock the power out for your entire neighborhood, but sometimes there's an explosion with injuries and even death. It happens every single year. Look, there's a very simple way to avoid it. Before you dig, call 811. Call 811 two days before you dig. Tell the operator your address, and someone's going to come out and mark the location of buried lines so you or your contractor can avoid them. It's simple. It's free. And guess what? It's the law. Louisiana 811 operates 811 as a public service. And to promote public safety, Louisiana 811 and the game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, reminds you, call 811 and know what's below before you dig. Astros got out a 3-2 win over the Philadelphia Phillies in Game 5 of the World Series. They now lead the series three games to two. Verlander bounces back from giving up a leadoff home run to Kyle Schwarber. He gives the Strohs five innings, gets his first World Series victory of his career. Bullpen does its job. Great defensive plays by McCormick and Mancini. 
Jeremy Pena, oh, he is going to be special. He is going to be special. Really is. That kid can absolutely play. And Presley closes the door. Now they have two games to win their second World Series championship. Game six will be Saturday back in Houston. While the Astros were taking on the Philadelphia Phillies, there was some news that came out for Louisiana fans that wasn't great, but to be honest, was absolutely expected. And not surprising, but disappointing nonetheless. Dennis Allen talked to the media yesterday. Once again, the Saints are gearing up to take on the Baltimore Ravens on Monday Night Football. And during this, he unveils that Michael Thomas, who's been out for multiple weeks with a turf toe injury, come to find out it's not turf toe, it's a dislocated toe. And that's, he's done. Done for the season. Likely will not play the rest of the season. Uh, There's a lot of different ways to look at it. You can look at it this way. He signs the nearly $100 million contract, goes out there, has the greatest season a wide receiver has really ever had. 2019 since the NFL record with 149 receptions for 1,725 yards, nine touchdowns. Sets the receptions record. You're like, money well spent. And then it's been disaster ever since. 2020, only played in seven games, 40 catches for 438 yards, gets injured, is supposed to have surgery. They delay the surgery. It's misdiagnosed by the Saints training staff or doctors. There's confusion there. Does not happen. Then he has to miss the entire 2021 season. Played in three games this year. Suffers what we were told was a turf toe injury. Expected him to be back after a week. Now, nope, not so much. It is brutal injury luck. I'm not conspiracy theory guy that believes that Thomas is doing this not to play for the Saints. You gave a guy a huge contract. You took a gamble. Anytime you give somebody a massive contract, it's a gamble. Because there's no guarantee that they're going to be healthy for the length of that contract. We had no... There was no thought process that Michael Thomas wouldn't be healthy for his contract. He was healthy in college, been healthy to start his NFL career, a dominant wide receiver, a top five, top three wide receiver in the league. And he had a sensational season. 2019 was special. And Thomas was special in it. But three years of essentially zero production for a player that's costing you $20 million per year is absolutely brutal. It's absolutely brutal. And this lends itself now to questions. 
what are the Saints going to do? He was injured in 2020. You didn't get you didn't even get half a season out of him in 2020. 2021, lost for the entire year. Didn't play a single down. 2022, he plays three games. His contract hit is massive. Massive. If you cut him or trade him, even if you were fined someone that would take his massive contract and be willing to, to take a flyer on it and absorb his contract despite being injured for three years in a row, the cap hit is going to be, I think, around 18 to 20 million. That's just dead money on the salary cap. So it, it feels like you're kind of stuck with them now, aren't you? Now, you could cut them. It wouldn't be as bad, I, I believe. But you're still going to take a huge salary cap hit. And you're not going to be able to field a competitive team because you're not going to have the salary cap space to do so. Even Mickey and his wizardry of being able to figure that out won't be able to absorb $20 million of a cap hit. $20 million in dead money, you can't do it. So you're kind of stuck with them. But that also leads, to, is it just better for them just to part ways and go, okay, you know what? We're going to take the cap hit. It didn't work. We're going to have to do a rebuild. This guy's never going to play for us. He's never going to be healthy enough to play for us. Do they cut him? Do they trade him? And we'll have a discussion another day about the Saints medical staff because that's something that needs to have a deep dive done on it. That was a reason why there was tension between Michael Thomas and the Saints because he felt it was there was a misdiagnosis the first time around when he got injured back in 2020. And so much so that Sean Payton had to fire the staff. Now, they use the same staff, different staff members, but they're using them from a, the same uh, don't want, hospital would be the best way of describing it, okay? That the Saints have an affiliation with. But here we are again. Apparently, it wasn't turf toe. In, 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 the, in 2022, with the access to all the medical equipment and services that you have, your medical team, your training staff, your medical staff can't diagnose the fact that it's not turf toe. In fact, he has a dislocated toe and that, you know, he can't run. Really? Really? I feel you should be able to see that, right? Like if it's dislocated, that's out of the right joint. You, like you have should be able to see where it is. State-of-the-art imaging equipment state-of-the-art that the general public has access to, like myself. And what are we doing, Saints? I think that's a legitimate question that needs to be asked. Of all of this, yes, it's bad luck that he's gotten injured. He's snake-bidden now. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just bad luck. But what's compounded things, what's made this situation worse with Michael Thomas has been the bad diagnosis and the bad evaluation from the Saints medical staff from jump back in 2020. 
and they were supposedly fixing it by getting all new staff members. Remember Sean Payton fired everyone? Well, guess what? They did it again. And now you got a guy that you're paying 20 mil per year to that doesn't play for you. Go ahead and fill out your bingo card. That's a big old woof. Unbelievable. Let's head out to the hotline. Welcome on Mike to the show. Mike, good morning to you, brother. What's on your mind, my friend? What's up, RP3? How are you today? I'm doing good, bud. I'm doing good. Kevin Foote survived. He didn't have a stroke on us last <laughs> night, so that's good, bud. I'm happy. Well, I'm happy for Kevin and his Astros, but he ain't going to like what I got to say about Michael Thomas. I, I just think at some point the Saints got to admit they made a mistake paying the dude. He's a bum, bro. That dude is a bum. I keep hearing about how great the 2019 season was for him. Was it really that great? I mean, there was a guy named Cooper Cup that just had a better season last year, but he made it count in the playoffs and in the Super Bowl. So, you know, to, to put it on the medical staff, you got to dislocate his toe, dude. Stop. He's not even the best receiver on that team. And I'll tell you, from an outside perspective that's not wearing Saints-colored glasses. Ain't nobody want that dude, man. And we certainly don't want his salary with his injury um, history. And let's be honest, Michael Thomas ain't fast. He's no, a he's not fast. Receiver I will tell you, season, I, right? Mike, I will tell you this. There, there, there's two guys that automatically pop to mind that would take a flyer on him and absorb the contract. One of them is Jerry Jones because he'll spend money. And the other one was the late, great Al Davis. Now, he's no longer Jerry, with us. Jerry Jones, don't spend money. But if he, he thinks... Sent, he just sent Amari Cooper to Cleveland because he didn't want his salary. He didn't pay Randy Gregory. He paid all the that money to Zeke Elliott. Carolina. Mike, he paid, all that, he paid all that money to Zeke Elliott for him to be a bum now. <laughs> so, they, they're paying a ton of money to Zeke Elliott for not producing and actually being the second-best running back on the roster. You're talking about a wide receiver. The history of Jerry's, and he doesn't pay wide receivers, man. But that doesn't even matter. Does, is Dallas better with Michael Thomas? No. They, Michael no, I'm Thomas not saying that, Mike. That's not, Mike, Mike. That, that That's not, you said no one will take him. Look, there's always going to be somebody no one desperate. Will take him. I'm disagreeing with you. Jerry Jones wouldn't pay that dude. You're telling me there's not a team in the league that would be desperate enough with all the bad so owners let me, let me ask you, let and me ask all you the this. bad teams. This, if Daniel if Snyder wasn't manager. being forced to sell his team by the NFL right now, Daniel Snyder would be on the top of the list of spending money on a guy that's been injured for three years. Now, you might be right there. <laughs> that's my right. team. I know but, I'm right. Let me, ask you, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. You're a GM in the NFL. I'm going to give you a broke, bum wide receiver that hadn't played since 2019 for $15 million. Oh, I'm not. T- you want to shake on that? Oh, no, 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 no. going to do that. No, no. And he's not fast, and he's not that good. Mike, Mike, I'm not. It. Mike, God, brother, it is 640 in the morning. I need you to take take a moment here, get the blood pressure down, okay? I'm not disagreeing with you. I would right. not do the deal. I'm not going to pay not. that money. First of all, I wouldn't have paid him the $100 million to begin with. That, that's one. Of course not. Uh, okay. But 
there, you know, I would not do that. I would not pay him that money. I agree with you. I would not do that. But man, there are some a lot of people making a lot of money that make terrible decisions in the NFL that would probably do that. It's a very small group, but it's the most incompetent franchises in the NFL. We know the list. The Redskin Commanders football team tops that list. The Browns are another team that would top that list. Teams that make terrible decisions with free agents and draft picks. Those are the type of people that but, would but trade for him. To, you have to, at some point, put the Saints on that list, too, because they did pay him. They did pay him. That was a stupid move. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was ignorant. And and now you got to hold on to him so you don't absorb, like you said, a massive oh, it's, it, it, And this is not the first time the Saints have done stuff like this. They're stuck. Right? They're stuck. I think I, I, I think they're stuck. I think they're stuck. I really do. Some people say they may cut him because you wouldn't it, the salary cap hit wouldn't be as bad as say a trade. Uh, but I mean, look, eventually you're either going to cut him and take a huge salary cap hit for next year, or maybe even two years, or you're just going to be stuck with them in hope. In hope, I, I know they're in a bad spot and they got to move on from this dude. But I think the problem is that Saints fans still believe that he's a top-tier wide receiver. He's not. He's not. He's really not. And, like, even if he played at that 2019 level, which was a – he had a great season. But I don't put, to be honest, a lot of stock in great wide receiver seasons because it doesn't always equate to winning. I've seen some great wide receiver seasons that didn't mean nothing. In 2019, did the Saints go to the playoffs? Yeah. Okay, what were what was Michael Thomas's numbers in that playoff game? Well, I don't have those right in front of me. Well, it's easy. It, trust me, it, it won't take long to calculate. So what I'm saying is, those regular season numbers don't mean nothing. Look, it was so, a gamble, and they thought it was going to pay off. After 19, everyone thought it was going to be uh, that it was going to be pay, uh, paying off, and then 2020 happened, and then it's 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 done for and, them, and brother. You know what it's most done. People say Raymond about that playoff game when Mike. Oh, well, he's hurt. He's always hurt. He's not available, <laughs> brother. So, I appreciate so, the phone call, man. I got to let you go. I got to hit go. a break. Yeah. I appreciate right, man, it, man. Enjoy your day. Enjoy your weekend, brother. My man, Mike, ready to go. He was ready to go, ready to talk, fired up. I love it. And look, I've said it before, availability. It's all about it. We've had this conversation before on the show. Is Mike Thomas the top three top wide receiver? And I say no because he's not available. You've got to be available to play, man. And once again, he's not available to play. And that leads us to our poll question of the day. Will Michael Thomas ever play another down for the Saints? Are they going to trade him this offseason? Are they going to simply cut him? Or are they going to try to stick it out and see if the guy who's become Mr. Glass could actually be, I don't know, just a productive guy? Because they got their new number one wide receiver. It's Chris Olave. It's a bad man. That kid can play. Will Michael Thomas ever play another down for the Saints? 60% of you say no. 40% say yes. JPK, the OD, says Michael Thomas rolling into training camp next year, and he shared, of course, a picture of Mr. Glass. He says, unfortunately, yes, we will be forced to go through the hope, crushed hope cycle at least one more year. Too much dead cap space to cut bait until 2023 or 2024. 
and his base salary for next year is fifteen five. Signing bonus of four mil. Oh my goodness. A cap hit would be twenty eight million. Dead cap space of twenty five million. Oh my goodness. No good no 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 no. Keep those votes coming. We'll share them throughout today's show. We gotta take a timeout, a brief one. More RP3 and company, though, coming up right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update, presented by Tibbs Trailers here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station. Poll question of the day, will Michael Thomas ever play another down for the Saints? 62% of you say no, 38% say yes. Let's get to some more comments here. Todd on Twitter says yes, no one wants to take a risk on an injury-prone wide receiver with a huge salary hit. Thomas will need to prove his value for another contract. He'll play, he'll ball out, he'll get another big contract, but with more conditions, I've said all along, you can't predict injuries. Do you think he's going to ball out? The guy hasn't played in three years, essentially. John Paul Cajun Daddy says, of course he will. Sometimes the highest paid doctors in the world just so happen to miss a foot injury that's causing the player's pain. Mm. I have bigger questions about the medical staff and how they operate things down in New Orleans. Ralph Bergeron says, definitely maybe. His contract makes him impossible to cut or trade. He'd have to renegotiate his contract. Is he going to do that? I don't think so. And get healthy. Can he do that? I don't know. The former maybe, the latter doubtful. The medical staff shaking my head. I found video of their rehab room. It's a gif of the Three Stooges. Jacques Swallow says, next to Matt Flynn, Thomas is winning the paid and don't play club. Keep those votes coming on our poll question of the day. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. Just make sure you keep them clean for the kids. Or as our buddy Steve says, it's a no-salt Friday. We got to take a timeout. Come back. Little McNeese, little UL football discussion. That's going to be next right here on the game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Louisiana Raging Cajuns taking on Troy this weekend, this Saturday at Cajun Field. Need to get the win for sure, right? Need to get on track after losing at Southern Miss last Thursday. Still can get to a bowl game. Still can complete everything that they want to complete, right? They want to get to a bowl game. That still is possible. They just have to get back on track. Troy looking to win the West Division. It's not going to be easy by any stretch of the imagination. And Saturday will also be Senior Day for the Louisiana Raging Cajuns. And Coach Dez has been here for their entire careers as an assistant coach under Mark Hutspeth and then Billy Napier. And now he's the first-year 
as the head coach of the Raging Cajuns, and he talked about this senior class and what they've meant to the program. You know, I told this group earlier in the year um, that I really believe that they can turn this thing into something that they're really proud of in the end, and, and I truly, absolutely believe that. And so for us, it, we're honoring a group that uh, they're special, man. They're, they're obviously really good football players, but they are great people. Um, and they've really, their leadership has really carried this team and helped keep this team together. Um, so I'm, uh, that'll be a, that's always a tough day uh, when the seniors are, you know, kind of being honored for their, you know, I know it's not our last home game, but, but it, that's the way we're going to honor it since it's a Saturday so that we'll have a, a crowd that they deserve um, to take care of them and do it the right way. So it's, uh, th those are always difficult days um, just because you know how much they mean. And, you know, no team's ever the same. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about it today and kind of something we're going to share with the team. You know, you have to, you know, you have to blaze your own trail and you have to create your own path. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about was if, you know, if the path is clear and it's easy, you're probably on someone else's. So um, that's all part of it. And these guys have been trailblazers and they've they've created their own path and I'm proud of them for it. Now they'll face Troy, a team looking to win the West Division and advanced to the Sunbelt Conference Championship game. They moved over from the east to the west this season during the realignment of the conference. And Coach Dez talked about the challenges those Trojans will present the Cajuns on Saturday. Troy makes you earn it all the way down the field. And, and, and you know, when you watch their defense on tape, there's really no soft spots. You know, certainly everyone knows about Carlton Marshall, um, as they should. Um, but their defensive line is really good, right? You know. It doesn't matter how good you are at linebacker. If you don't have a D-line that can win one-on-ones, that can take up double teams and do those things, you're going to get you're going to get fit on at the second level at linebacker. And then on the back end, I think they do a really good job. I mean, they, they make you throw the ball in front of them, and they tackle well. You know, they, they get you on the ground. They don't give balls up over their head. Um, on the back end, they, they play good defense, you know, and they keep it all in front, and they tackle really well, and they run well. So um, they're, just, they're just a really good defense from front to back. Senior day this Saturday. Cajuns need to win. No better way to honor those seniors to get a hard-fought victory over Troy and get back on track to get to a bowl game and have a winning season. That's going to do it for hour number one. Whew, great hour. Hour number two is going to be even better. James Yasko is going to help us kick it off. Our buddy from the Lima Time Time podcast. That's next right here on The Game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station in your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Astros, winner, winner, chicken dinner, game five. Oh, so many great moments in this ball game. Verlander is able to overcome giving off the leadoff home run. Gives him five innings. Did his job. Didn't melt down. Bullpen 
stepped up as well. Mancini, awful at the plate. Great with the glove. That play at first base, man. McCormick's play in center field. That could have been a triple. Presley closing the door, needing more than three outs to do so. Jeremy Pena. Carlos Correa, who? Strohs get the win. They now lead the World Series three games to two. Only need one win in two games. Back home inside Minute Maid Ballpark to win their second world championship. Will they do it? Sure does feel that way. The no-hitter seemed to be the momentum in this series. They seized it. They ripped it from the Phillies. And now they have it, and it sure does feel like they're going to close it out on Saturday. And I do believe a certain morning show host predicted Astros in six. Not for sure what his name is. We'll have to look that up. Good our crack research department on top of that to find out who made that prediction. I think it's just some old bum that like came off the street and comes old every morning. Bum? Wow. 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 I'm just saying I'm one way from bingo, by the way. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you made your you're having fun. You decided, by the way, producer extraordinaire Miss Hannah Five names decided to make up bingo cards for things that I do and sayings that I do on this show, as well as for Kevin Foote. So she says she's only one away from having a bingo already, and it's only 7.06. Have your fun, five names. By the way, your year anniversary and evaluation's coming up. (laughs) We'll see how that goes for you. Now it's time for us to bring on our first guest on this Friday edition of RP3 and Company. You know him, you love him. You need more of him. You can't get enough. It's James Yasko from the Lima Time Time podcast. James, did you even go to bed? Did you get you any sleep whatsoever? Yeah, no, I'm I'm so exhausted. This this is the absolute worst. I don't, I don't, why why do we why do we put ourselves through this? Uh, this just I, actually, I woke up like 30 minutes ago, which is a big problem for me. Uh, and and shout out to my amazing wife who's who's holding it down while. Well, I'm doing this because I'm I'm not I'm not okay. I'm just, that's that, that's how, that's how that is. <laughs> you t- your team won. How do you sound so frazzled? Like you need to go have a weekend at Bellevue? Like your Every, team won. That's fair. Every okay. So that was the let's see, twelfth uh, <laughs> game of the postseason, and and I believe that that I I said before the playoffs started, which was. <clears throat> about two and a half years ago, uh, if is the, is the way that it feels. You didn't have gray hair when it started. Yeah, um, I was like, you know, it'd be it'd be real nice to have just a, a pretty stress free eleven and zero postseason. Well, the Astros are ten and two, and and this every game has has been just the most stressful thing in the world. Like, how is this? How is this possible? so tired <laughs> so tired he's just so tired all right let's go back because this world series has been fascinating once again i'm not an astros fan so i can be a little bit more objective <laughs> here than, than you are philly we get the rain delay the series gets delayed by a day that helps philadelphia i thought the crowd was electric they go out there. They tie the World Series record with five home runs in a game. Lance McCullers Jr. 
is absolutely dreadful in the ball game. The lineup goes 0 for 15 with Tucker, Alvarez, Altuve, and Bregman. And then the next day, it's combined no-hitter time for Christian Javier and Presley. And I just, I've never seen that in a World Series where one team is dominating, dominant one day, and then the next day, the other team has completely took all the momentum away. And I've just never seen that before. Yeah, no, I mean, that's what, I understand that that there are people that, that absolutely love you know, the NBA and the NFL, um, even the uh, NHL might be a little bit similar of a playoff format to, to baseball, but you, you can't, you cannot replicate this drama. Um, the literally from one night to the next, it looks like the Astros are going up to bat with a pool noodle and, and Lance McCullers can't buy a pitch over the plate. Um, and if he, if he does, it's going over the, it's going over the fence. And then the next night it's a, it's a no hitter. Um, and that, that's, what's just, it's, this is, I think, I think all of us knew this, this isn't, this wasn't going to be, even though I said Astros in five last week and, and keep in mind that if, if the Astros had held on to a five Oh lead in game one, then, then there's a parade like Monday. Um, like that would have been it. Like last night would have been it. That would have been, that would have been a four, one series win. I, this, this is, it's just been such, it's been so dramatic. And the, and the shift has changed, you know, in, in different directions so many times. Let's talk about the fact that this team in its pitching was able to bounce back in a big way. I mean, you get shut out and your pitching staff gets absolutely demolished. And then Christian goes out there. Another one of those young international players that the Astros found that no one else was looking for, that they've turned into stars. How important, forget about the no-hitter, but just how important was it for Christian to go out there and to establish himself and give his team a chance with pitching so well like he did yesterday, or two days ago now? So it's, it's, it's massive, and Verlander did not have it in game one. Uh, Framber had it in game two. McCullers did not have it in game three. Um, game four was, you know, down two one with the next two games in Philadelphia game four was, was an absolute sort of that, that was a must win. That was a must win game for Houston. And, and you don't have, you know, your, your top three, I guess the, at, at least what feels like your top three, I think Javier has put himself into, into talk about being in the top half of the rotation. But but when Christian Javier goes out there and, and is and just mows down the Phillies lineup, which is no cakewalk uh, as as we all saw in in Game Three, um, and it's all year long. You know the, the the Phillies. You know you can say whatever you want about you know sneaking in, getting to the last spot, and you know they wouldn't have been there if there hadn't been if the NL hadn't gone to the DH this year. But that that is a terrifying lineup. I mean it's it's just edge of your seat you know, one through five, and then you've got production from seven, eight, nine, you know, the, the part of the drama last night with Verlander was walking, gave up a hit to Segura and then walked the, the, the dude that looks like he walked out of a night at the museum diorama, uh, whatever his marsh that's, that was his name. Um, it's no, it was massive. It's it maybe the, the biggest start of, of the year, uh, and not, not just the postseason. 
they get the combined no hitter, and then comes last night. Series is tied two two. What's going through your brain when Verlander gives up the leadoff home run to Schwarber? Uh, what was going through my brain was like the the monkey like or like a guy playing an accordion like and drums at the same time like it was straight up circus music like that that's that's what was going through that was going through my mind it was it's just in, in you just kind of think like here we go again and this is who this is who Verlander is um and and he 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 pulled it back like he he was able to overcome his own narrative uh, last night and and good for him got got the got his first world series win and, and more importantly james than the first world series win he was able to give them five innings i said it yesterday on the air he just needs to go out there and do his job don't give yep. up more than two runs give them five innings and the astros will have a chance to win and sure enough that's what he did and he did so while not even really having his fastball last night yeah no he there was, he could not find his fastball and and so just to and that's just that that sort of I mean that that's a guy that's been pitching in the majors since 2006, um, just went out there and 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 did his old man Kate Upton husband magic. I mean that's that's that it was it was incredible. What's even more incredible has been the play of Jeremy Pena. In this World Series, he's a rookie, but man, he sure doesn't look like it. I. How, how do you describe a guy who's a rookie coming into a situation and has been playing at a level where he is the best player on the team? Yeah, I mean, you know, when Carlos Correa was the he, – he sort of carried the luggage from the whole fallout from, from 2017. You know, put the team on his back, would go out there, answer questions, tell Cody Bellinger not nice things. Um, which was and, and just endeared himself. He he became sort of the the face of of the franchise, uh, and could still back it up. And and it's been it's been less than a year, and and I'm not going to say anybody's forgotten about Carlos Correa, but there there was not a a production dip and in the hands of a of a rookie. And so like shout out to Jeremy Pena for for just sort of going to work and, and, and letting Astros fans, uh, I, I mean, I, and honestly, I'm, I'm sure James Flick is probably the biggest Jeremy Pena fan ever. Cause if that hadn't panned out, then, then, you know, he's, he doesn't, he doesn't exactly cover himself in glory in that decision either. So there are, there are a lot of people that are extremely happy that Jeremy Pena is that guy. Not only does Verlander push through and you get great, production at the plate by Jeremy Pena but when you needed two guys to make great defensive plays you do that Trey Mancini has been lost all postseason he gets forced into the game because Yuli gets injured with some uh, foot discomfort during that rundown and he makes a sensational play at first base that takes away a hit and then McCormick takes a triple away with that great catch at the wall. Two guys, back-to-back innings. They got production from everyone. It just wasn't the pitching, just wasn't Presley, just wasn't Pena. They got two guys that stepped up, made two great defensive plays as well. Yeah, and I mean, nobody, you know, McCormick's had had a really nice postseason. Um, 
Mancini has not. And, and so when you're getting a contribution like that, like that's as good as an RBI uh, when you're, when you make a play like that at first base. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's good to see, you know, Mancini do that in a, in a postseason where almost literally nothing has gone his way. And, and that's just, you have to have sort of that team approach to, to a, a series like this, where it, it's going to take everybody to, to beat the Phillies and uh, especially in Philadelphia. How are you feeling right now? Honestly, uh, do you feel like the Strohs are going to close things out Saturday with Framer on the bump? I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's lining up that way, but you know, with this world series, you know, the way that it's gone and the way that momentum has shifted, you, you I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's game seven going to go, you know, 76 innings and, and it's going to be played until 5:30 Monday morning. You know, probably that's that's probably what's going to happen. But you've got to feel good having Framber at home uh, in a in a clinching situation. So you know, the the Astros are uh, this year anyway. You know, they're two and zero in in potential clinch games. So um, it's lined up to where it, it could be a pretty fun Saturday night. Well, this was delightful talking to you while you're uh, razzled and frazzled. And uh, you're a bit of a mess right now, bud. So hopefully the Strohs will win on Saturday and you can actually sleep and collect your thoughts <laughs> for yeah, next yeah. week. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it's yeah, going to be okay, James. It's going to be okay. I, I, so the, the fun, the also fun part of this is, is because I'm <clears throat> this tired, uh, I have to leave for work here in, in less than 10 minutes, and I haven't even showered yet. I got I got to get in the shower. So this is, I just, uh, God bless us, everyone. Uh, I'll, I'll text you tomorrow, bud. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we all live for. Yeah, there it is. Oh, have a good day, brother. Hey, y'all have a good one. We found another Kevin Foot, just a long-haired version that lives in Texas. We got to take a timeout. We will return here on RP3 and Company. I mean, these Cowboys, they're looking to get their second win of the season when Eastern Illinois comes to town. We'll hear from Gary Goff. And then Hannah and I will make our picks for the weekend. LSU, Bama, UL, Troy, McNeese, Eastern Illinois. That's all coming up next right here on The Game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. There are some hosts that talk like they know everything, but you don't have to worry about our guy, RP3. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. That's because he never knows what he's talking about. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Back to the show in the know. RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Lafayette Marble and Grant offers the largest selection of granite, quartz, and marble here in Acadiana, and they appreciate the opportunity to earn your business. As you've heard me tell you before, Chris and his team over at LMG, they provide more than show-stopping marble countertops for your kitchens, bathrooms, and man caves. LMG also now has an extensive selection of custom shower builds with their grout-free shower lines. That's right, no fuss, no muss. 
And guess what? After a couple of years, you don't have to worry about the odor. Make sure to visit their website, lmgelite.com. That's lmgelite.com to learn more about all the sensational services and great products they have to offer. Live inventory is updated every single Wednesday. Visit lmgelite.com or stop by their soon-to-be-renovated showroom located right there on I-49 North across from Hub City Ford in the jockey lot. It's Lafayette Marble and Granite. They're looking to earn your business, and trust me, earn it, they will. Cowboys of McNeese. It's been a rebuilding season, first year under Gary Goff, and they seemingly have gotten closer and closer week after week of breaking through. They're 1-7 overall on the season. They play their final non-conference game on Saturday against Eastern Illinois, kickoff set for 7 o'clock. They nearly beat Southeastern at homecoming, losing 28-27, and that follows the week before losing at Nichols 40-35. So they're getting closer. They just are. They're getting closer. Can this be the week that they actually break through and get themselves a win and they've had to depend on a lot of young guys and coach Gary Goff talked about how the new guys have really stepped up for this team yeah it was great to see John make some plays for us you know John's a, a big physical guy um you know he's just a red shirt freshman you know so he doesn't have that much experience but um he is very good uh, at, at catching the deep ball uh we just got to get him to play a little bit more consistent as well but um, you know, that, that was great to see him make some big plays right, right there. Uh, you know, Jalen Johnson is another young guy that last two weeks has been playing very well. And, you know, that, that takes some pressure off the quarterback, right? And, uh, you know, therefore, you know, number one's not the only target. You know, I, I think you've seen that the last three or four weeks where teams are zero in on, on number one. Uh, so it's good to see some other receivers make some plays. What's been the feeling like around the team? Obviously, Another tough loss, but they have an opportunity to finally break through. How have they been this week? Have they been positive? And this is what Coach Goff had to say yesterday. Yeah, I mean, typical week. Um, you know, we, we had a good practice yesterday. You know, we need to finish the week strong. You know, Walt Walker's had a good week of practice. You know, he, he's quarterback position still. Um, looks like Knox is getting healthier. Um, could be active this weekend as well. So we'll see. But, um, no, I had a good week of practice. Um, and, uh, you know, th- this team is a um, – they're, they're a good team. They're, they're very similar to us. You know, they're, they're looking to finish the season strong. Um, they've got a couple of key players back this week is what it looks like. Uh, they're, they're a middle linebacker, had 15 tackles last week. That was his first game back. Good player. Um, their quarterback's going to be back this week. And they like to run the ball. You know, they're, they're a big physical team, likes to run the football. That's kind of their, their M.O., and then defensively, they, they mix their coverages up a lot, bring a lot of different pressures, and try to keep everything in front of them. Um, a little bit similar to Mississippi College's defense. So McNeese, Eastern Illinois, Saturday, tomorrow night in the hole, and we'll see if the Cowboys can get on track and get that second win and try to wrap up the regular season strong. We'll make our picks later on today's show. Hannah and I will unveil those before we sign off on the air. But right now, we got to take a timeout. When we return, we'll talk LSU Bama. Ryan Fowler, our friend from Tuscaloosa, will join us to give us some insight on this matchup from the Alabama perspective. That's next, right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. 
good, and here we are on the eve of Alabama LSU, and you know the energy beginning to build, and you know inside that locker room for Alabama, uh, a lot of people think that it's Auburn is the biggest rival for the players. It's not for the fans. It's Auburn, but for the players, it's LSU. I mean, LSU is a big rival inside that locker room, and if you ask them to rank it, uh, it would be LSU one and probably Auburn two, and. I guess now with Tennessee beating Alabama, that one might come back into a little bit level of importance. But uh, yeah, so uh, that's that's kind of kind of where uh, that rivalry is inside that locker room. So this is a special one for the players. I guess it has something to do with kind of defending Nick Saban returning to Baton Rouge. I think that's where maybe that originated from. But uh, a special game, special game down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I know I did a very poor job of uh, putting a little, little Cajun twining on there. I'm not very good at that, Raymond. Can you help me? Uh, oh, man. No, man. I, I can't help you. I'm originally from Mobile. I can't do that accent for you. I can't help you one bit. Okay. I, I like to do uh, – and, and I respect uh, LSU, so it's not like I'm making fun. Uh, I got some good friends down there. Uh, but I used to have Coach O on my show up here. I couldn't understand a word of what he was saying. I mean, he could have said Nick Saban. Boy, I had no clue. I, I literally had no clue of what he was saying. So uh, uh, it, it's, you know, good, hardworking folks down in, down in the state of Louisiana, man. You guys, you guys do a lot of good things, and uh, it's always fun to talk about a good game. Let's talk about this matchup between the number six ranked team in the college football playoff rankings and the number 10 ranked team in the rankings. And when I watch Alabama play this year, Ryan, I see something that surprises me. I see a team that's sloppy. I see a team that is dealing with rash of penalties. I am seeing a team that is sometimes not the more physical team on the field across the line of scrimmage. What is ailing Nick Saban's ball club? trying to figure it out. I really do. I, I really do. I think that Nick Saban is still trying to figure out what's going on with his football team. And, you know, we'll see if coming out of the bye week, if they were able to settle some things, if they were able to try to find, you know, some ways to uh, to correct and, and to move into the right direction. But it's been a lot of, like, focus penalties. I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about false starts. We're talking about little – simple things and I think when you become the known as the team that commits a lot of penalties I think the officiating watches it more uh, or closer they you know put it under a you know attention to detail to see if those calls are still there so they're not going to feel sorry for you uh, and, and that's where Alabama's kind of in that situation they've been kind of known as a team that makes a lot of mistakes and they get called for a lot of mistakes so uh, this team is, uh, you know, it's it's an up and down. It's been like a roller coaster. It's it's kind of like watching the stock market. Some days it's up, some days it's down. Uh, but this has not been a, a typical Nick Saban coach football team. There's a lot of things that they don't look like a, a Nick Saban team. Uh, but, you know, all the goals are still right there in front of them. I mean, even though they've lost to Tennessee, you went out, you, you get a shot in the playoffs, and, and we'll see if, they're able to do that, but it's got to start with a you know better performance. Uh, I thought it would be better against Mississippi State. It was not. Uh, they were very sloppy against Mississippi State. They were still able to win the game, but you know they didn't play as great. So we'll see if uh, they find some confidence in Tiger Stadium. 
Alabama's offense has been inconsistent as well. They started off the season unable to run the football like we expect them to, but they had Bryce Young. Bryce gets hurt, then they can all of a sudden run the football. Power football, vintage Bama football. And then since Bryce has returned, they've gone away from the running game. How do you, I don't know, summarize Bill O'Brien's ability to call plays in year two as the OC? There's so many things that you can take. I mean, let's go back to last year. He had an awful offensive line. I mean, it was just bad. It was just not good. So when I look at this offensive line, it's better. But then they've had the injury to Bryce Young. They lack creativity uh, on that side of the football. But I think some of that has been because of that injury to Bryce Young. I think they were what they were doing early on is they were saving some of their stuff. In other words, you know, you could beat people but just being based and, you know, not try to get cute, not try to get fancy. I think they were doing that. And then there were some teams like Texas kind of pushed them a little bit. and Maybe they had to, you know, be a little bit more creative. Uh, then Arkansas, the injury goes down with Bryce. And it was like, what do we do now? What do we do now? And, and so this team is not a great run blocking team. They're better at pass protection which is the same, almost the same identical unit other than Tyler Steen is out. Uh, and then Chris Owens, uh, well, Evan Neal, Evan Neal was, is no longer part of that team as well. So it's a lot of the same offensive linemen, and they were better at run, protect, or run blocking last year. This year they're better at pass pro. It, it, it's just, you know, Bryce is one of the best players in college football. You tell me what you think. Now, I know I'm biased because I watch him every single week and I'm not able to watch everybody else every single week. I think Bryce Young may be the best player. I can't think of many college football players in my history in the media that are clearly better than Bryce Young. I can think some guys that were equal to, but I think Bryce has an argument not just to be one of the Alabama greats, but I think he may walk out of college football. You know, what if he's hits a switch and he wins a second Heisman Trophy. We know that that hadn't been done since Archie Griffin in the early 70s. Uh, what if he's able to put a national title in his back pocket? You know, he may walk out of here as, as one of the all-time greats, not just in Alabama, but in the SEC in college football. He has the opportunity, and like you mentioned earlier, this team, despite the loss to Tennessee, they sit right at six. And if they win out, they get to Atlanta, they play for the SEC title, which means they're going to play currently the number one ranked team in the college football playoff rankings or the number three team. And if they do that, then they're in the playoff. So everything is still in front of them despite the injury, despite the inconsistencies on offense. Is that kind of the message that Saban is putting forth? Yeah, and, and so, you know, and, and I, want to, I want to pick your brain about something else. I know you got me on a question here, but I'll, let's just take that scenario, what you just said. If Alabama wins and they went out, okay, let's say Tennessee beats Georgia – this weekend. I think that game could go either way. I, I mean, there's days that I like Georgia and then there's days that I like Tennessee. I agree so with you on what that. If, you know, all right. What, what if Tennessee, let's say Tennessee wins that game. Okay. Where Georgia is currently in the polls at number three. Let's say Alabama beats Tennessee. Tennessee beats Georgia. Georgia would slide a little, right? So Alabama, Tennessee meets in the SEC title game. Alabama beats Tennessee. Well, I still think Tennessee would be in. What do you do with Georgia? Is Georgia completely out? So, I mean, what a resume when you look at college football and then they've got to 
they've got a loss to Tennessee. But now they did it at home, so I guess that would add some value. But, boy, that would be a disaster for the committee. Uh, if, if you're trying to, you know, you're trying to put the best four teams in, but then could you put three SEC teams in the, in the college football playoffs? I mean, they're already melting down, you know, when we talk about, you know, two teams. Ryan, I think to answer your point, I think the committee showed its hand on how it feels about the Big 12. Once again, a Big 12 team, an undefeated Big 12 team is nowhere near the top four. TCU's at seven. So the the Big 12 is already on the outside looking in. Uh, the Pac-12, I don't think, gets there. I think it's going to come down in your scenario to if they take a one-loss Georgia team or a one-loss Michigan or Ohio State team. I think they would like the idea of having three SEC teams as much as people hate it and would talk about it and would scream about it on television on the big networks uh people would watch them yeah yeah because it would be good college football and so then when you look at at alabama against tennessee just kind of let this sink in would you put them in a semifinal game again so could we have back-to-back games against tennessee i mean these teams could actually play each other three times in, in the same season i mean let that sink in i mean it's and in some ways you know for tennessee they finally got that streak broken, and it may only last a couple of months, and then it's broken again. So it's like they don't really get a chance to take the victory lap if you're the volunteers. So just something to think about, and, hey, that's what we do. I mean, we talk about different scenarios. But I guess that's what makes our job so much fun. You're right about that, brother. We're talking to the game's Ryan Fowler. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. All right, let's talk about Saturday's matchup. What's going to be the key to a victory for Alabama? I think they got to run the football. I think Alabama needs to run. They don't have to run a ton, but they've got to be successful when they do the rushing attempts. They've got to be able to go, hey, let's line up. Let's play a little little physical football, kind of get back to that. But the problem is they haven't shown that they've been willing to do that. I don't think you can go there, and, and you, get, you need to score early. See, what got Alabama in trouble early at Tennessee on the road is they gave that team and that crowd confidence that they thought that they would be able to win the game. Opening play, kickoff, penalty, penalty. Set them back inside the shadows of their own goal line, and they had to, they had to punt the football. So what does Tennessee do? First drive, score, touchdown. And then it was on because that, that team and that fan, that crowd felt like that they could win the game. So with a ruckus, Tiger Stadium, uh, one of the – I think it's probably the best venue in college football. Uh, my, my fans get so irritated when I say it up here uh, that it, it's better than Bryant Denny. It, it, now, facility-wise, if you want to look at scenery and you want to look at, uh, you know, skyboxes, I mean, listen, Alabama's got one of the best out there, but I'm talking about literally just based on crowd noise. You can't even hear people in the press box. I mean, we'll be sitting in the press box, and you can't even hear the people to your side. So, most importantly, score early. Take that crowd out of it and not allow them to believe that they have a chance of, of beating Alabama. And what do you think the key is going to be for LSU? Find a way to create some more turnovers. Find a way to create some mistakes for Alabama. Uh, if they give you that short field, take advantage of it. Uh, mobile quarterbacks have not been good for Alabama. Um, it's been a kryptonite. And, you know, how will, how will Pete Golding play that? Will he play it? As he did, Hendon Hooker, listen, Hendon Hooker's nowhere near uh, the mobile quarterback. But he, he can extend the plays. They spied him all night. I don't know if you can do that against LSU. I think you got to come after him. All right, bud, we'll get you out of here with this. Who do you got? 
Yeah, Alabama wins the game, but I don't feel comfortable this team covering. I don't. I think it'll be a lot closer. I think what does Vegas have at thirteen and a half points? Yeah, according to some of those experts out there, I think Alabama wins, but I don't think they cover. I, I think Alabama, you know, goes to Tiger Stadium. But who knows? I mean, we started the conversation describing this Alabama team as a roller coaster. They've got the potential to walk into Tiger Stadium and beat a team forty-two to seventeen. They've also got a chance to go out and, and, and win 24-21, kicking the field goal with two seconds to go. That's why it's so hard to predict which team's going to show up. Is it, a, is it a team that's coming off the bye week that used that to get better? We'll know about 7 o'clock inside Tiger Stadium. Brother, always appreciate your time, man. Keep up the tremendous work that you're doing with your show, The Game, over there on Tide 100.9. Appreciate your time, as always, brother. Hey, I appreciate you guys, man. And I'm coming down to y'all state. Uh, I'm, I'm always excited to enter the state and get some good food. So I'm, I'm excited to go down to the state of Louisiana. You guys have an awesome day, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, bud. That's Ryan Fowler. He hosts The Game with Ryan Fowler on Tide 100.9 in Tuscaloosa. It's the longest-running sports talk show in T-Town, giving us a preview there of Alabama LSU. Once again, The Game will be tomorrow pregame with Hunt Palmer, Marlon Favorite, and Brandon Taylor will begin at 4 o'clock. Kickoff 6 with Chris Blair on the call. You can tune into it right here on The Game, your home for LSU Tiger. We got to take a timeout. We'll wrap up hour number two with Scott Holtzman from the Barb broadcast team on 1041 Lake Charles. That's all coming up next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Welcome back to RP3 and Company. Week 10 has arrived for high school football, and teams are jockeying for playoff positioning. And one of those teams are the Barb Buccaneers. They're 5-4 and four overall, 3-4 and four in District 3-5A play, and they've won three games in a row, averaging 46.3 points per game during that stretch. But as it stands right now, it looks like they may be on the outside looking in, but a win tonight against Acadiana High would probably lock them into a playoff spot to break it all down for us to tell us about how they've been able to turn around this season and about tonight's matchup with Acadiana High is the man that's part of the Barb Buccaneers broadcast team. Scott Holtzman joins us now. Scott, good morning to you, brother. How are you, my friend? Hey, Raymond. I'm good. Good to be on with you, bud. Scott, the season started off with them struggling, struggling to find an identity and getting wins, but they've turned things around. What's been the big key to this recent success as they've won three straight games? Started the season, a uh, big win of our old rival, uh, LaGrange, and uh, really looked good in all three phases of the game. And then we played Karen Crow, uh, got down pretty big to Karen Crow early, uh, but fought back, tied the score in the third quarter. Uh, but what really hurt Barb early in the season against Karen Crow uh, was turnovers. We had either four or five turnovers. Uh, that, that were deep in Barb territory, and that really uh, hurt Barb. And then in the next game against Sam Houston, uh, we, were, uh, we had the same problem. We had four or five turnovers. And against Sam Houston, we were ahead going in the fourth quarter, and uh, we kept Sam Houston hanging around, and, and uh, they went on to win with a two-point conversion. So, you know, we, we had a lot of expectations, a lot of kids coming back this year. So the season started off as kind of a disappointment at one and two. Uh, the, the biggest thing, Raymond, was that we lost our starting quarterback, Will McClain, 
who started for us last year in the San Houston game, and he's, he's not been able to come back. So it's taken us a while to kind of get our feet up under us. Uh, we, have a, uh, uh, we have a junior quarterback, Carson Sanford, who's been playing uh, really since the end of the San Houston game, third game of the season, and he's kind of come into his own. And uh, so it's taken us a little while, but, uh, you know, we've, we're on a three-game winning streak. Uh, Carson's finding his receivers. Our running game's coming around. So we're really playing our best football of the season, which, you know, you want to be going into the last game of the season. You know, last year was a transition year in a lot of ways for the program. After not being able to play the prior year due to the hurricanes, lost players, families had moved away. Do you feel like this year has been kind of a a breakthrough, so to speak, to help kind of get Barb to where it used to be and where it needs to be? Well, you know, none of us had any any clue as to what that was going to do, not playing football, uh, you know, back in 2020 with COVID first and then the hurricanes and displaced families. Uh, it took a while for the team to really find itself. Last year was a down year for Barb, four and six, the first uh, non-winning regular season since 1977. Normally, Barb averages about seven to eight wins a year. So that was very, very different and really shocking. So, you know, we had a lot of play. We had played a lot of young players last year. And a lot of those players came back this year. So we're really expecting Barb to be right there uh, in the mix. And, uh, you know, a couple of games earlier in the season against Sulphur and Sam Houston, Barb led. And if Barb would have pulled out those two victories, then instead of being 5-4, and four, we'd be 7-3 and three right now. Or 7-2 and two right now going into the K&A game, which is really kind of what we expected going in. But, again, the, the uh, turnovers and losing our starting quarterback – was a big blow for Barb. And uh, so, you know, we are still, I think, transitioning even this year with a, uh, with a junior starting quarterback in the third or fourth game. So it's, it's really kind of set us back. I, I don't really think we've seen the full potential of just how good Barb can be uh, until maybe right now. And uh, if we, you know, we're, we're, we're looking for big things uh, against the Cadiana Friday night, but, uh, I'll tell you, Raymond, it's going to be a tough task because we have not fared well against Acadiana. Last time we beat Acadiana was 2014. The last four or five games have not been competitive. They've been blowouts by Acadiana. So, you know, we really, it's going to be a big test. We're talking with Scott Holtzman, part of the Barb High School broadcast crew. You can listen to them on 104.1 in Lake Charles for tonight's game with Acadiana High. Scott, let's talk about this game because it means something for Acadiana High as well. Because right now, according to Go Preps and their projected playoff brackets and, and their seedings, Acadiana High is on the outside looking in to get a first-round bye because we have the new playoff format this year. So they need to definitely win and need a little help to get up there to get one of those first-round buys. You guys need to get a win to be able to jump into the playoff field. Well, you know, we're not used to seeing Acadiana with three losses during the season. Uh, you know, they have they have played outstanding football uh, really from 2006 on when they won their first state championship. So, you know, normally Acadiana this time of the year, they're undefeated. They might have a loss. Uh, you look at the teams they've lost to, they're really, really, you know, some of the best teams in the state. Uh, Lafayette Christian in the first game, uh, and then John Curtis uh, a few weeks ago, and then, uh, and then a, a loss to Southside. 
So, yeah, it's really, it's kind of, it's very different for Acadiana uh, to be uh, with those three losses. But I'll tell you, uh, you know, when you look at the teams at Acadiana, the rest of the teams in the district, uh, uh, Southside uh, and Karen Crow notwithstanding, uh, the other teams, they've basically blown them out. Como, Lafayette, uh, you know, they, they've, they've dominated them. And so, uh, you know, Acadiana is a, is a very, very powerful team. And, uh, you know, the way that I see it, uh, Raymond, is that Barb's going to need to play their best game tonight. Uh, no turnovers, clean game, and their best game of the season will have to be played last night uh, or will have to be played tonight against an outstanding Acadiana football team. Uh, you know, I've watched Acadiana through the years, and for me, Raymond, what's really made the difference for Acadiana has been the defense. They've always been good on offense with that, with the Veer uh, option offense, but the defense has really turned it around for Acadiana. Kind of modeled after the old West Monroe teams that, uh, you know, played outstanding defense. That's what I've seen the difference for Acadiana, and that's really been. I guess the downfall for Barb in these last several games is we have just not been able to move the ball consistently uh, and left our defense on the field too long. And, you know, against that beer option offense, after a while, those, you know, those blows that you take trying to slow down that running game, if you really don't have any offense, it's a long night. And that's the way it's been. So Barb is going to have to move the ball, pick up first downs, and they're going to have to score because uh, you know Acadiana, uh, they're going to score against Barb. I mean, they scored 42 points last year against Barb and really took their foot off the pedal in the fourth quarter. So I would expect that, uh, that kind of scoring outburst. So Barb's going to have to, Barb's going to have to score with them and score a lot in order to be, uh, in order to be in the game. You know, you really want a fourth-quarter game against Acadiana because we've not seen that in the last several years. So uh, we'll just have to see, Raymond. Scott, appreciate your time. As always, you and Mark have a tremendous call tonight. Once again, Acadiana High at Barb. You can listen to it right here on the game, 1041 Late Charles. Scott, good luck tonight, bud, and thank you so much. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. That's going to do it for hour number two here on RP3 and Company. Hour number three, right after this timeout, we'll kick it off. Toby Christie talking NASCAR championship weekend for them. That's coming up next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. What a weekend it's going to be. We got tremendous college football action on tap. McNeese is going to be playing a game Saturday, looking to get back on track. UL will be taking on Troy at Cajun Field. LSU, Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia. Plus, game six of the World Series will be in Houston tomorrow night. And then this weekend, 
the cup championship will come to a close. It's going to come down to 312 laps at a 1.022 mile track in Avondale, Arizona, where they will crown this year's NASCAR champion to give us a preview and to give us his thoughts on who he likes out of the four guys who are the contenders. It's our friend from tobychristie.com, the NASCAR reporter we trust. Toby Christie joins us now on RP3 and Company. Toby, good morning to you, brother. How are you? RP3, I am doing well. How the heck are you, my dude? I'm doing well, man. It's been a minute. Appreciate you making the time. So it all comes down to this final race in Arizona on Sunday. And a bit of a surprise, obviously, is Joe Gibbs Racing's Christopher Bell. He wins the round of eight finale at Martinsville Speedway, which automatically means he punches his ticket to the final race here. And he was well below the cut line, by the way. How much does that upset the apple cart? And whose spot did he take in the final four? Well, I mean, so when you look at things, yeah, he he was outside the cut line. But it was due to the shenanigans between Bubba Wallace and, and Kyle Larson at Las Vegas. So if you really think about it, that upset the apple cart. Because going into that, it looked like, Christopher Bell would be one of those guys that was going to make it to, to the championship four. He was running so well. He's been so good in these playoffs, but he's had a couple little weird issues that weren't his doing. Uh, but what he's done is very impressive. Every time he's been in a situation where his back has been against the wall, uh, Christopher Bell ha- has come through. And uh, he's pulled out that, that clutch win when he needs it the most. And uh, I mean, he's, shown, he's shown an ability to close. But, yeah, so him getting in, uh, knocked out, uh, you know, obviously there's other reasons uh, this guy was knocked out in the closing laps, but Denny Hamlin uh, is the guy who's who's on the outside looking in, the first guy who missed the cut uh, due to this to this victory, and that's, that's Chris Rubel's teammate, so it's uh, kind of interesting. Uh, there was talk during the season of the demise of Joe Gibbs racing. I, I guess that was premature, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things where – yeah, sure, they didn't come out of the gates firing on all cylinders, but, I mean, it's, that's to be expected. You know, there's only six Toyotas pretty much out there. So, with a brand-new car, it's, it's hard to pull enough resources to get all that information like the Chevys and Fords have been doing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the talks of the demise were way premature. Um, and, and at the end of the day, Jacobs Racing had another good season, uh, and they've got a guy who has a chance to win a championship. Let's talk a little bit about about the young man that has a chance to win them a championship. Obviously, he wins the race at, say, Martinville. What type of driver is he, and just how good can he be? Oh, man, he is one of those guys that when he's in the zone, he's he's pretty good. I mean, he's one of those guys that uh, on, on that day where he's firing on all cylinders, Chris Rebell doesn't make mistakes. Uh, he's a guy with incredible car control. He comes from the dirt racing background, so that car kicks sideways. We've seen it uh, in his Cup Series career uh, already. The car kicks sideways. He finds ways to save things. You're like, There's no way. He should have crashed that thing three times already. So uh, Chris Rebell is a, a extremely talented race car driver. Uh, I know he's only been in the Cup Series for you know a few years here, but he's, he's older than the usual guy at this situation in his career because he just didn't have the funding to move his way up as fast as some of these other guys do. So he's one of those guys that worked his way up the hard way. Uh, Toyota felt, uh, felt 
like he was the guy uh, that deserved uh, the Toyota funds, and that's how he's ultimately at the spot he's in. Uh, but it did take a while, uh, and he's one of those guys that you know has earned uh, his spot, and I think we're seeing that uh, with the performance. I mean, you just look at how he's how he's performed all season long, and 19 top 10 finishes. Uh, he's he's got more poles uh, than anybody else this season. Uh, he's got the second most amount of wins uh, this year. So, I mean, Christopher Bell uh, is getting it done. Chase Elliott is royalty, right? He's a legacy guy. And he was the most dominant driver for a good section of the season. But lately, he hasn't been that way. He only has, what, a couple of top tens compared to the other guys that are in the field. They have been trending upward towards the tail end of the season. He hasn't been. What's been kind of off with Chase, and do you believe he has a chance come Sunday? I mean, I do believe he has a chance come Sunday. He's he's extremely good at Phoenix. Uh, obviously, this is where he won the championship back in 2020. Uh, so to count him out would be just ridiculous, I think. Uh, like you said, he was the dominant guy uh, early in the year. He's the only guy who's shown that ability to kind of really win a lot of races and bunches. Uh, there was a, what, we had like a six-race, five, six-race stretch where he finished one or two uh, in that entire stretch. So uh, he has shown the ability to get hot. Uh, but, again, a product of this new car is we have seen major inconsistency from everybody in this field at some point throughout the year. And, unfortunately, for Chase Elliott, that started for him once we got the playoffs. I mean, he's uh, only sitting here with three top tens uh, in the nine races we've had in these playoffs so far. Uh, very uncharacteristic for Chase Elliott, especially from what we've seen this year. Uh, but again, if there's one place that can cure those kind of ailments for him, it would be Phoenix. He's really, really good at Phoenix. Um, and again, when you look at other tracks, he's really good at, uh, like Martinsville. Uh, he, he ran good, finished 10th, uh, had another good run this past week. Uh, so I, I think Chase Elliott, and as weird as it is, he's coming in under the radar, which most popular driver, guy with the most wins this year, um, you know, and, and he's coming in under the radar. Maybe that's, you know, the way he comes in and sneaks up and, and takes things. But I just find it weird that people are writing him off uh, when he's had such a good season. Uh, and he's, he's a guy who's really, really good at Phoenix. I just think it's uh, irresponsible to write off Chase Elliott. We're talking with Toby Christie of tobychristie.com. He covers NASCAR. Championship weekend has arrived. They're going to be racing in Arizona on Sunday. 312 laps to determine who the champion is. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Ross Chastain. Uh, he's got a lot of buzz. He's had a tremendous season, and he's become a bit of a viral sensation for that move he pulled and uh, say Martin, in Martinsville where he learned it, claimed he learned it from a Nintendo GameCube. Uh, it, break it down for us. <laughs> the move that he made and why has it made the racing world just kind of stand up and pay attention? Yeah. So in the closing laps of Martinsville uh, and on the last lap, uh, going into the final set of turns, his crew radioed to him and said, man, we're going to need a couple points here. You're, you're out. And he said, I need a couple points. And he's like, yeah. Uh, and what he decided to do is something we've seen a couple guys try over the years, but we've never seen anybody pull this thing off and actually have it work. And what he did was he just decided, I'm not going to break in the last set of turns. I'm just going to go up against the wall, ride it, and see what happens. And uh, I, RP3, I was there. I have never seen what this was. This was 
the car was exponentially faster than everyone else around him in that set of turns. It was wild. I'm walking down pit road and, you know, kind of positioning myself for post-race availabilities. And I just see smoke and turns three and four. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? I, I see it's Chastain, and he's close to where Hamlin is. I was like, oh, man, they got into it again or something. Like, what's going on here? And then I just see him skidding across the start-finish line, just barely passes Hamlin to the line. I'm like, what in the world did I just – like, what happened? And the crowd was going nuts. I mean, it was an electric atmosphere. This was – it was insane. I, I just I, – I, I can't fully even describe it. We're, there aren't words for it. What we saw was insane. It's something that it had to work exactly perfect for it to work the way it did, and it, it, it did. He got – the points he needed he passed his biggest rival at the start finish line like just barely nipped him there were so many things at play here and at the end of the day ross chastain by not breaking in the final set of turns and skidding across the wall for the entire length of turns three and four uh somehow some way the the watermelon farmer uh has moved to the championship for the guy who Kevin Harvick several years ago said he'll never make it to the Cup Series. This guy's not only in the Cup Series. He's racing for a Cup Series championship. He has a chance this week to tie Kevin Harvick with a Cup Series championship after being said that he would not make it to the Cup Series from Kevin Harvick. So, I mean, it, it's wild what we've seen here. What's and the Ron background Chastain, there, the Toby? Proven. He'll do what it takes. Toby, what's the background there with Harvick? Why did he say that? Why did he think Chastain could had what it take to make it? Yeah, so they were battling for a win at Darlington in the Xfinity Series uh, a few years back, and it was it would have been Chastain's first win, and Chastain was being ultra-aggressive trying to get that win because he's not in that situation, at, at least at that time, very often. And they went over the line. They both crashed, and uh, Harvick was very upset about the situation. And uh, in, a, in an interview after the crash, he said, well, that's why that guy will never make it to the Cup Series, and, and just really kind of belittled Ross Chastain on what should have been a, a high point of Chastain's career at that point. Uh, and it was that day where, you know, I think the light switch flipped on for, for Ross Chastain. He saw, I can do this. And uh, since then, it's been a, a complete reversal of trajectory for, for Ross Chastain. And now, just a couple years later, he's in the, in the Cup Series Championship for battling for a championship. The fourth driver that's going to be competing for the championship on Sunday in Arizona is Joey Logano. What do you make of Joey's uh, season? We've talked about him. Uh, he was a guy that was thrust into the spotlight as the heir apparent uh, there for the Home Depot team, and it, it didn't work out as well as everyone thought it was, but it seems like he's found his footing in the last couple of years, and here he is, has a chance to win a cup championship. Yeah, no, and I mean, every other year, uh, he's been making it at the championship four. Obviously, in 2018, he won the championship. And I mean... I know he doesn't have as many like top tens and stuff like that as he did in his, his 2018 championship run, uh, but I feel like this year with three wins, everything else, it's very similar to what he had that year. And uh, he just feels like when he needs a good run, he puts it together. When you just start feeling like maybe Joe Logano isn't doesn't have what it takes this year, doesn't have the speed he needs, he just kind of shows up and has another good run. All of a sudden, you're like, well, dang, there he is. He's, he's back. So. Um, he's another guy who's and the, this entire group of four. I mean, it's impossible to pick somebody going into this thing with how un how unpredictable this car has been, uh, how good they all are uh, on any given Sunday at this point, uh, and just how good uh, you know three of the four have been at Phoenix over the years. So, 
Uh, you know, Joey Logano is a guy that if you bet against him uh, nine times out of ten, he's going to make you look like an idiot. So uh, he, he's he's very very good, and I don't think he gets enough credit for how good he is. Uh, but I mean, just at the age of what 32, he already has 30 Cup Series wins and a championship. So uh, Joey Logano is is very very good. They raced in March there at Phoenix Raceway. Chastain finished in second, Logano eighth, Elliott eleventh, Bell in twenty six. I know the season is long and these cars have kind of changed a little bit and how they've been able to figure it out. Do you take any stock in what happened earlier this year at the March race? And does that impact who you like to win on Sunday to win the cup championship? That's a great question. Uh, it has been a long, like you said, it's been a long, long time since March in the NASCAR cup series. A lot of things have happened. Uh, and I don't know. I really don't know if I take much stock in what happened back in March, but I do know this weekend, the weather will be a little chillier than we expect at Arizona, which kind of plays into, you know, how things were closer, at least in the spring than usual when we come back around this time. Uh, so I think we may see something similar to what we saw in the spring. Uh, but at the end of the day, I feel like all four of these guys, uh, they're battling for the championship. are going to be in the mix. Uh, all the way up through these closing laps. I don't think we're going to know a champion, uh, you know, until the checkered flag flies, especially now that we've seen somebody could possibly wall ride to win a couple extra spots in the, in the closing laps. This this could be a situation where we really don't know uh, until until this thing's over. So who are you picking? Man, you know, you start looking at things, obviously Chase Elliott is one of those guys that's unflappable in these kind of situations. Joey Logano is my preseason pick or my pre-playoff pick so when we've had to put our grids together i picked joey logano i actually had joey logano chase elliott uh and christopher bell making it to the final four i had larson as my my last guy so i missed the chastain part i figured you have some issues with somebody uh but man i'm i've got to stick with logano i just feel like i feel like he's that guy that game seven moments he's got that clutch uh streak in him uh as soon as there's something on the line he has a shot at it uh, he's proven that he has a mean streak and will do what it takes, kind of like a Ross Chastain, uh, but he's a little bit more methodical about it. So Chastain's still kind of crafting that. He's still pretty young and still trying to figure out how to make it work while also still getting the success uh, with those moves that he may make that are over the line. So I think Logano's the guy. I, I, I really feel Logano wins this race and wins this championship. Toby, appreciate your time as always, brother. Thank you for the insight. Enjoy the race on Sunday, bud, and we'll talk to you soon, brother. Sounds good, RP3. Let's do it some more, man. That's Toby Christie from tobychristie.com. Covers NASCAR. Championship will be determined on Sunday. I told you it was a jam-packed weekend. Told you. we got to take a timeout. When we return here in RP3 and Company, fantasy football advice from our expert, Zach Miller. That's next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Download the free The Game mobile app for Android and Apple devices. No matter where you are in the country, you can listen to The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station. Oh, it's time to give you 
the much-needed advice that you're desperately needing for your fantasy football team. It's time for us to talk to our fantasy football expert of RP3 and company, Mr. Zach Miller. Zachariah, how are you this morning? I'm doing pretty good, Raymond. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Doing amazing. Couldn't be better. And of course, now we're talking to you, so we're about to take my fantasy football team to the next level because selfishly, I ask you questions that help my team. So, <laughs> so, all right. So the trade deadline came and went, and there was some activity. But what moves that were made, I think of Hawkinson being traded inside the division and Claypool being shipped to the Bears, the Bears shipping defensive players out like they were uh, having a fire sale. What deadline moves make the biggest impact in fantasy football, in your opinion? Yeah, fantasy-wise, the, the ones you mentioned are probably the, the ones that are going to have the most impact. Wilson to Miami's probably a bit of a lateral move, the same as Edmonds. Uh, going over to Denver uh, in that trade that they made for Bradley Chubb. Um, Hawkinson, I, I don't see his targets per game increasing dramatically um, in an offense that has a lot of weapons already. Um, he was more of a focal point in Detroit, um, but he will definitely have some red zone opportunities in, in what is a much better offense. Um, so Hawkinson, I, I think, uh, can have an uptick in production possibly, but I don't see his his targets drastically improving. Now, Claypool, uh, he's a big red zone target on a team that desperately needed it. Um, so I think that was a, a, a good move for them. I think who it benefits the most out of everyone is, is Justin Fields. He may see the most positive uh, impact from any of the trades. What do you make of the Los Angeles Rams? Because they've been dreadful. And Stafford has been not very good. Their offense hasn't looked good. I mean, Cooper Cup is going to get you points if you have him in your lineup. But the rest of the guys that a lot of people expected that were going to be productive players for their fantasy teams, courtesy of the defending Super Bowl champs, have wildly disappointed. What do you make of the Rams guys, and how many of those guys are you sitting and starting? Yeah, I'll be honest. Even after their bye week, the offense just still didn't look like what we saw out of them last year. And even you mentioned Cup right now, he he may be slowed a bit by an ankle injury. I uh, don't know how much that's going to impact his productivity. Uh, but you got guys like Van Jefferson um, coming off of injury, who's who was back last week and this week with Cup being hampered a bit. Um, he may be someone who can have a positive fantasy impact if you're looking for a sleeper due to. Uh, injuries or, or something along those lines. Um, he had 12 catches over 20 yards last year and six touchdowns, so he's kind of a boomer bust type prospect. But uh, he can he can get it done for you in a pinch if you need. Uh, but those other guys, the running backs and uh, Robinson, I just can't trust them on a week in week out basis. There's been a few notable injuries to running backs and wideouts in the last couple weeks. Guys are either really dealing with injuries or they're they're been placed on the IR or they're going to miss some time, especially at the running back and wide receiver spots. What are some of the best waiver wire pickups this week if you need a guy at the wide receiver spot or if you need a guy at the running back spot due to injuries? Yeah, I definitely alluded to one of them right there, Van Jefferson. He's available in just about 88% of leagues. So if you need a wide receiver, uh, he's the person at target right now. Um, the other guys out there, I, I don't really have much interest in them at this point, but uh, Van Jefferson is who I'd be targeting uh, due to his availability and his upside. 
um, as far as running back goes. Khalil Herbert, uh, oddly enough, is still available in about 50% of leagues. He's averaging 11.9 points per game right now, which is 18th among running backs, uh, even with um, Montgomery getting most of the touches there. He's been very efficient and uh, has actually produced pretty nicely and and still available in 50% of leagues. Zach, when it comes to our draft preparation and just how most people deal with their teams, kickers are irrelevant, right? We wait till the last uh, last round to draft them. It really doesn't matter who you draft. Most guys don't really pay attention and don't even know the, the difference in the kickers. But it seems like this season, with fantasy football scoring down the most it's been in more than a decade, anytime you can get any type of points, it's immensely important. Kickers are far more important than they have been in years past. Uh, does that how it feels to you? This man wants to know about kickers. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. This year is the year of the kicker, isn't it? Um, unfortunately for you, I don't have a life, so I have a couple kickers in mind. Um, <laughs> Jason Myers, Seattle's kicker. Uh, they're going against Arizona. The over-under for that game is 49. So that's probably going to be a high-scoring affair. So if you can get a hold of Jason Myers, um, I would definitely stream him this week. Or somebody like Jacksonville's kicker, uh, Riley Patterson, they're going against Las Vegas. Over-under in that game is 46.5. So what appears to be another high-scoring game, I, I, I'd tackle him as well. you got guys like Justin Tucker, Will Lutz. Over-under for that game is 48.5. But I doubt either one of those kickers is available but just because of their name recognition. Um, but, yeah, some of the guys further down the pecking order, Riley Patterson and Jason Myers is who I would target this week. Brother. Appreciate your time, as always, your insight. Hope you have a tremendous weekend in the RP3 and Company League. Uh, Do you feel confident about your matchup? I never feel confident about my matchup anymore, Ray. (laughs) But I'm optimistic. Uh, Oh, man. Got nothing but love for you, bud. Enjoy your weekend, brother. You too, my man. We got to take a timeout. When we return, Big Easy Blitz. Yeah, the Saints don't play Sunday but they're going to play Monday night. Why not go ahead and get a look ahead about the Houdats as they take on the Ravens? And what about Michael Thomas? Have we seen the last of him in a Saints uniform? We'll talk about that with Scott Shanley, former Super Bowl champion for the New Orleans Saints. He'll join us coming up here in RP3 and company. But just a reminder, hey, Delta Media has an immediate opening for a social media digital content manager. This is a fantastic opportunity to join our locally owned company and contribute to high-performing radio and television properties. It comes with a competitive salary, excellent health care benefits as well. Come join our team and have a great time inside a great company. Find out more at DeltaMediaCorp.com. Send your resume to Shanae, S-H-A-N-A-E, at DeltaMediaCorp.com. Big Easy Blitz next here on RP3 and Company. You're listening to The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and you're home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Houdan is ready for Saints talk. They give to Camara, breaks through, spins at the two, into the end zone, touchdown! Time to talk Saints with the Big Easy Blitz here on RP3 and Company. Joining us now here on RP3 and Company is a man who was a starting linebacker in the NFL, 
member of the Saints Super Bowl championship team from 2009. Scott Shanley joins us now. Scott, good morning to you, brother. How you doing, man? Good morning. I'm doing good. Let's talk about that defensive performance last week against the Raiders because it's been a while since we've seen the Saints defense play that way. They were dominant. They got after the quarterback. They got pressure. They tackled well, which has been something that they've been struggling with this season. What did you make of what you saw from the Saints defense against the Raiders holding them to only 183 yards of offense? Well, my first reaction was finally. Finally, we saw the defense that most people thought we would see this year because to me, they just played to their expectation level. Um, people in the building, fans, there's no doubt that this team was going to go as far as the defense takes them. Still, great players on the offensive side of the ball, but you know, life after Drew Brees, you don't have a young guy in the building. You're still trying to figure out that position. You put all your eggs into the defensive basket. So I, I was very impressed. Um, I think, for me, a lot of guys stepped up and, and showed up in the box score that hadn't been producing. I mean, Peyton Turner coming back, finally getting on the field, two sacks, that is huge. Getting somebody to be productive opposite Cam Jordan and then, you know, Werner and, and DeMario in the middle have, have always shown up at the box score. They're, they produce every week. And not having Lattimore against the Devontae Adams offense, I thought the young DBs showed up, made plays. Taylor was, was really good. Alante Taylor was really good. Um, but so many so many bright spots. But for, to your point, the most improved thing I saw from the previous week was tackling. And hopefully that continues because if you can tackle well in this league, you can win a lot of games. Scott, I have a theory here, and I want to run it by you. When I see teams struggle with tackling, that feels like a practice thing to me. It feels like – I see it just not with the Saints, but I see it across the NFL where tackling is becoming a lost art, if if you will. Is that just because of how teams have changed the way they approach training camp in the preseason now where it's less of what it used to be and maybe these guys just aren't getting the necessary reps to tackle properly or is it just a lack of effort? It, it is a little bit of both, but I think it, it's more the, the first thing. I've been, a, you know, I've been very outspoken about how I think there's a fine line in during all these collective bargaining agreements and these negotiations. The, the owners are going to let players negotiate negotiate away playing time for revenue all day, every day. So eventually in 20 years, maybe the players won't even practice. Maybe they'll just show up for games and the owners will keep collecting all the revenue because that's the only bargaining chip the players have is less practice. But I think you're seeing the effects of it on the field. There's no doubt that the quality of play in the offensive line has been about as bad as it's been ever. The tackling has not been good. It's starting to get better. But you can't get good at those things unless you do them. And nobody nobody wants to tackle anymore in practice for another reason. Guys are making a lot of money. Guys don't want – owners, coaches don't want to see $20 million wide receivers getting tackled in practice and getting hurt and not being able to play the rest of the year and still having to cut them a check. So I think part, part of it is how much money guys are making. It's all about just getting to the game. If they get hurt in the game, we'll deal with it. But the only way you can get good at tackling – is by having full speed practices. You don't always, you don't have to take people down the ground. We hardly ever took people down to the ground, but the practices were full speed. You were vice tackling. You were, if you weren't in pad, you were tagging off at the hip. You were showing that more often than not, you were going to make that tackle just based on your speed of the ball and the angle you you took to the ball. And you you don't necessarily have to take people down in practice. You can get really good at tackling just by practicing full speed and taking proper angles, and those things will show up on Sundays. 
And, and I agree with you. You're seeing it less and less. The offensive line play in the NFL has been atrocious this year. That's led to the offenses struggling mightily. We're, we're talking a league that's been built on protecting quarterbacks and wanting to have huge numbers and fantasy football-centric type of offenses uh, haven't really been able to do that because I don't see very good offensive line play, and I'm starting to see that trickle down to college as well. Why do you think that is with the O-line play that we're starting to see the last couple of years? Yeah, I think, again, main reason is just the same point I talked about tackling. You're not getting enough physical contact. It used to be training camp was enough physical contact. Two days in pads, heck, you got enough contact in in a preseason. August felt like a season in itself. You were ready to play the regular season because it was less of a beatdown than training camp in August. And you had had all the physical contact you needed to get ready for a season. Now, these guys, you know, the first time they're facing a, a guy live bull rushing them over and over again is in a game when they're when they're in the game for 60 plays. So I think that is one of the main reasons for offensive line play that, that's been struggling. But I also think the the game has changed. So a lot of kids now, they start off in middle school, high school, college running the RPO game where they don't really have to block anybody, where they don't really have to get nasty and block anybody across from them every single play. They can just kind of push somebody out of the way for one or two steps because the quarterback is going to make the defense wrong. And I think that passive play on the offensive line has created a little bit of laziness and softness in that area, and I think that has led to those guys being a little bit farther behind once they get to the NFL because the NFL game is more traditional football than any other level. The other levels are, are glorified basketball on grass and seven-on-seven seven. at most, especially here in Texas I see it, but in most states. And then you get back to a little more physicality and running the football quarterback under center in the NFL. We're talking with Scott Shanley, longtime starter in the National Football League, a member of the Saints Super Bowl championship team from 2009. He joins us here on the Big Easy Blitz. All right, let's talk about the Saints. It's hard not to be bummed about the Michael Thomas news because here it is, year number three of only seeing him partial. He's missed one complete season. He's only played in, you know, less than 10 games in three years. The contract is massive. There's nothing really they can do about it because the cap hit would be huh, more than $20 yeah. million, nearly $30 million. I, if you're the Saints, what do you do here? I mean, what can you do? Is there anything that can be done? Yeah, I think unless you as an organization have to decide, to your point, if you cut him, you're going to have 27, then $28 million in successive years of dead cap money that you're not going to get to use on anybody. It's just going to take away your cap. And you look at his base salaries, I believe it's about $18 million per year. So $35, $36 million over the next two years. As an organization, you have to say, are we going to get that type of production out of him? Are we going to get $35 million worth of production out of him over the next two years and just ride this thing out? Because if we're not, then we just we, we trade him for a seventh round pick. We, we we release him and we just eat that money. And we've all kind of accepted that that Alave is going to be the number one. That's why we drafted him in the first round. He's an excellent route runner. He's showing that he can be a number one receiver. So as an organization, you have to make that decision financially. Even if he plays every down for the next two years, do we think we're going to get that type of production out of him as really a number two receiver? And to me, I I just don't think guys who are aging receivers who have had a lot of injuries, especially in the lower leg area, who were never blazers to begin with. Michael's not a four-four guy. I, I think it's probably time to move on. And, and I, I, I think Michael, you know, obviously breaking records, single-season record for receptions, did it as good as anybody, but he just has not been able to stay healthy. 
So do you believe he's not going to play another down for the Saints? My gut feeling and belief is is that's probably the case. I think he's missed way too much football the past couple of years for the organization to to rely on him. Your 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 main attributes in the NFL are availability and accountability. It's hard to be accountable if you're never available. So I, I just think they're probably going to move on from him. Let's talk about this team though, because without Thomas most of the year, without Jarvis Landry most of the year, and They've found a way to put up points. Now, they've turned over the ball a ton, whether it's been Winston or Dalton. That's been an issue, the turnovers. But they've been able to score points. What do you make of what you're seeing from the Saints' offense after a sluggish start to the season? They've been able to kind of find themselves. Extremely encouraging. And I know know, last week when Dennis said that we're going forward with Andy, it seemed like there were a lot of fans in support of that decision, some fans that were maybe hoping to go back to Jameis. But – I think you can't dispute that decision based on you've seen an uptick in the offensive production. You've seen 400-yard offensive output games. You've seen 30 points. They were averaging 30 points a game with, with Andy at quarterback. The really only bad game he played where he turned the ball over was Arizona. Other than that, in four games, he turned it over four times. Three of those turnovers came in the Arizona game. So Andy has been everything they, they wanted him to be when they signed him. Certainly they probably didn't think he was going to be a starting quarterback, but they thought if he had to come in, could he run our offense? Could he execute it? Could he game manage it and help us win games and have our defense play well? And that, that formula happened last week. And I think you can win a lot of games with that formula. Andy has brought a calming, a calming sense to this offense where the guys go out there and they know he's not going to try to do more than what his ability is. He's going to stay within the offense. Listen, throwing checkdowns to Alvin Kamara is not a bad option. And he's been doing that since he's been the starting quarterback and it's been paying off. Monday night... Inside the dome should be electric, but they're going to have to try to figure figure out how to take down Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens. Lamar is a former league MVP. He is a dynamic passer and runner, and the Saints defense in this modern era has struggled with the mobile quarterback. I know the Ravens are banged up. They're going to be down without a wide receiver, and possibly they're starting tight end as well, and a running back. What do you think the key for stopping Lamar Jackson is, and how would you, if you were in that room as a as a starting linebacker, what's going to be the mindset heading into this game to slow down Lamar Jackson? Well, he's certainly he he's the blue dot on the scouting report. Not many guys get blue dots. Those are elite players. Those are very rare. And when you see those, those guys are game changers. So yeah, on that scouting report, Lamar Jackson is going to be a blue dot. If you don't contain this guy, he can beat you all by himself. And, you know, I, I wish this game would be a few weeks from now because we saw the Saints defense play the Raiders so good. And now, instead of playing another traditional offense for a couple weeks, you're going to face the most untraditional offense in the entire NFL. You're going to defend college plays. You're going to defend RPOs. You're going to defend uh, triple speed option, all sorts of different things. And so I, I want to see this confidence continue, but now you're, it's a completely different game plan. And you have to continue to go out there and execute and play at a high level like you did last week. So for me, my game plan would be, and what I would expect if, if Greg Williams, for instance, was in front of our room, he would say this. He would say, we're, we're not going to let this guy beat us with his legs because that's obviously his strength. And Lamar has gotten so much better at throwing the football. I don't want to make it sound like he's not a good thrower because he has gotten so much better. But you can live with Lamar throwing for 400 yards and beating you. You can't live with him registering for 250 yards and just running all over your defense, moving the chains on third down. So to me, I go out there. I play a bunch of man in the back end against their skill guys, and I load the box, and I say, you are not going to run the ball on us. You're not going to run all these gadget plays. 
we're going to lock you down on the outside, give up a couple plays, but we're going to load the box and make you throw the ball to beat us. One of those guys that's going to be counted on to have a big game, of course, is second-year player Pete Werner playing the position that you did, Scott. Uh, he has ascended quickly in year number two. I know he plays next to DeMario, but you could argue that Pete Werner's been the best player on this team's defense all season long. What makes him so special? His his athletic ability. I, I think I think to me, when you can get a they used to say four, three down linebacker to me a four down linebacker a guy who just does not come off the field. He has no he has he has no glaring weaknesses in space, and that to me is what today's modern linebacker is about. A guy who doesn't have to play first down when they have a fullback in the game, doesn't have to come off the field and put a nickel defensive back or another safety dime DB in because he's a liability in coverage. Uh, Pete, the way he flies around, his his athletic ability. People were worried about his size a little bit, I think, when they drafted him. But he is as physical as any linebacker I've seen. He stuffs the run game, and he's playing sideline to sideline. So to me, I, you, I haven't seen him blitz. I think Demario's probably the better blitzer between the two. But there, I agree with you. He's been the MVP of this defense this year because every week he shows up. He's double digit tackles. He's all over the field. He's covering backs. He's covering tight ends. So he is an extremely good athlete who plays in space and if you can do that you're gonna play the game a long time played a long time you know about that my friend thank you for making the time as always scott enjoy your weekend enjoy watching all the games brother and we'll be in touch and we'll talk to you soon bud yep sounds good thank you hey saints taking on the baltimore ravens as we said this coming monday night and the game is going to get you ready for that primetime matchup Crunch Time with Miguez Mesh is going to be broadcasting live from Twin Peaks on Johnston Street from 4 to 6 o'clock. So come hang out with the fellas, enjoy the ice-cold beverages and tasty burgers this Monday night as the Saints take on the Ravens. Twin Peaks eats, drinks, scenic views. we got to take a timeout. When we come back, we'll finalize the poll question of the day and we'll get you set up for Kevin Foote and Footnotes, which will hopefully be a glorious Friday morning. That's all next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers in Houston Astros. Oh, in addition to all the great sports action, there's a great event that you need to check out. Bikes, Brews, and Omelets 2 returns this weekend. You can enjoy some of the best cycling in South Louisiana and finish the day with food, beers, and live music. Go register now at latrail.org. There's a variety of routes ranging from 10 to 100 miles. Saturday's path explores St. Martin Parish and ends up at Tom Marie with hot gumbo. Sunday starts and finishes in Abbeville just in time for the giant omelet celebration. Once again, Bikes, Brews, and Omelets 2 this weekend. Go sign up at latrail.org. I want to take a moment to thank all of our guests for helping us close out this work week in such, oh, with high standard, right? High standard. What a way to finish the week. James Yasko from the Lima Time Time podcast. Ryan Fowler from Tuscaloosa's number one rated sports station. Scott Holtzman from the Barb High School broadcast team. Toby Christie, NASCAR reporter from tobychristie.com. Zach Miller, our fantasy football expert and former Saint Super Bowl champion. Scott Shanley for the Big Easy Blitz. Poll question of the day, final results. Will Michael Thomas ever play another down for the Saints? 67% of you say no, 33% say yes. Thanks to all who voted on that, and thanks to all who left their comments on Facebook and Twitter. But right now it's time for the producer extraordinaire, Hannah, five names and yours truly, to make our picks for the college slate of games. Let's start off with 
Alabama LSU. I think this is going to be a good game. This is a coin flip game to me. I think the point spread is way too high on this ball game. Bama is vulnerable. LSU is feeling confident. I think the tide got out a win, but it's not going to be easy. Alabama 31, LSU 28. Miss Hannah, five names. What is your prediction? I have the same exact score, not even looking at the scores you sent me earlier when you said, are you ready? Oh, yeah, sure. Huh? Right numbers down. Uh, I have 31-28, but I have LSU pulling it up set just like Tennessee did on the Bamas. There we go. Just like to point out, Tennessee drubbed LSU, though. Just saying. Just saying. It's fine. Just saying. But Alabama has been terrible on the road. Let's go to UL Troy. Gut check time for the Raging Cages. You want to get to a bowl game? It starts tomorrow, senior day, versus Troy. Now, Troy has been very good, but offensively, they have struggled 20 points, 17 points, 10 points. They're struggling to score, but their defense is lights out. I think this is a low-scoring game, but it's senior day. Coach Dez finds a way to get the team a win. Low-scoring affair, UL 17, Troy 14. I think Cajuns do pull it out. I think Coach Dez made a good point of keeping uh, Ben as the starter for the weekend. So I think Cajuns pull it out 21-19 over Troy. And finally, McNeese. They need a win. It's time. They've come close. Tired of being close. Time for them to break through. Eastern Illinois, they're not flying in until 3 o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> tomorrow. That's a mistake. I like the Cowboys 28-20 to 20 over the Panthers of Eastern Illinois. I'm not sure it's be that far apart. I think it's be like a one-point game. I think they're getting over the hump of their losing streak. I think it's going to be a 23-22 because the Eastern Illinois will have that going to corral in their stomach. For the producer extraordinaire, Miss Anna, five names. I'm Raymond Parsh III, better known as RP3. That's going to do it for today and for the week. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk to you on Monday, but until then, be safe out there. Be kind to one another. Kevin Foot and Footnotes is up next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station.